Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akran, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this podcast episode, I'm talking with Are McCrowen, a general partner at London Venture Partners, a VC firm focused on investing in founders in the game sector at the early stage. In this discussion, we talk about Are's extensive background in gaming, his journey into VC, what kind of learnings he's sharing, and how Are approaches risks, luck, and other challenges in gaming. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. AudioMob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're recording. Hi, Are. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jorgen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. Like, I've been waiting for to do this episode for so long. I'm a big fan of uh, the way that you've been helping out founders ever since you went into VC. And I remember like before the pandemic, we were talking and having calls and it was so interesting always to have those calls. So it's, it's really good to have you here. Thank you. First question. Can you tell the audience here your origin story and your way into gaming and how you eventually made your way into to being a VC? So I'm, I'm not a coder. I'm not an artist. Uh, I'm a business guy. Uh, business school finance strategy but then i ended up doing a startup which was doing value-added sms services in china and at the tail end of that we tried to make some game-like type of services i don't know if you remember you know the nokia sms value-added sms days but you know some of the simple game-like stuff that these companies tried to do including mine was send in a code and get some kind of question and then send in an answer and so on you know like we're really sort of embarrassing in terms of games yeah in 2000 2001 that was really big in finland at least yeah yeah exactly so i was doing that and i i just really got attracted to it and i've always played games so it sort of started me thinking if there was a way to get into games but then i had an idea that the gaming scene would be very closed for some reason so i was kind of concerned about how to enter and then i ended up running another business in china which was the chinese national team on counter-strike that was a business which was an esport portal and the company was owned by a lady who had multiple businesses including this uh, team we were trying to buy some other teams and we were working to get the tournament rights for different famous tournaments to hold the the, the china tournaments of those tournaments i didn't think of it really as gaming because it was an event business and i found it to be quite uninteresting it wasn't the type of scale or professionality of operations that i was looking for so i tried that for a bit but then decided to move on and then i started working with a swedish company more in a consulting fashion which was jade stone and i was trying to get in place a deal for them in china with uh, sina so sina was one of the big portals that also had a game division and we worked for a long time to get in place a contract with them to make a mid-core online soccer game so it was kind of like a slightly cartoony soccer game and it was quite tough going because the Chinese market has this weird thing where at least for my 11 years there I found this to be true that anything that has not been previously successful in China get always gets explained as something that will never be successful 
successful in China. And it gets explained as something that has to do with Chinese cultural characteristics and so on. And you can point to any kind of logic, like at the, at the time we were pointing to Western markets saying that uh, on console sports was like 30% of revenue or, you know, different stats like that, but nothing helped. It was like, no, 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 you know, sports is not a thing for Chinese audiences and so on. But then there was a basketball game launched with, I wonder if it was Shenda or the Nine that launched it in Shanghai, made by some Korean team. And it blew up and became a very big deal. So suddenly, you know, everyone was very interested in sports games. And we were able to get this pre-project running with Sina. But right on the day when we were going to sign, there was a fallout in the senior management between the COO and the CFO. And the CFO had never been supportive of gaming and the COO had been supportive. And then that day, the markets in China shifted how they valued revenue from gaming. Because at the time, you could say that the business model for games in China was deteriorating every two years. So it went from being paid to play to being subscription to being free to play in the course of like three years. And the market read this as an erosion of margin. So suddenly the multiples that were attributed to revenue from gaming dropped a lot and the multiples from uh, advertising stayed very high and were i think they were climbing at the time so the fallout led to the company deciding you know we're going to go for ad revenue we're not going to go for game revenue and we had no deal but i didn't feel like i was finished so i took on another startup which was doing outsourced development of 3d racing games so that's in, initially wasn't all only racing games but uh, we, we did outsourced development for nokia feature phones out of china and i tweaked that to be uh, specialized on 3d racing games and so we made games for ea we made games for glue mobile and it was quite good it was we had some good contracts with ea partners where we got paid quite well plus we got 40 percent of revenue so we made as much on our games as the guys who did self-publishing in china did if they were top grossing or top five but you know we got most of the money when we signed the contract and we got the rest of the money when we delivered the product and then we still had a kicker with a 40 percent revenue share but then, then I joined Playfish and I was planning to meet Christian Segerstrahle to see if he would buy my company because he had just left Glue Mobile. And I was thinking that whatever he's up to, it's going to be a new starting, a new game company and he's going to need production capacity in China because that was the thinking with Featurephone, right? It was all about low cost development and uh, catalogs, large portfolio of games and so on. So I met with him in London and then he explained that he wasn't going to be interested in a, a J2ME, you know, Java to micro edition team because he was going to do something new, which was going to be radically different in approach and design and thinking and skill sets. And it was going to be much more of a web service and much more live and working on numbers and with the community have very little in common with feature phone games, which was really a game of having relationships with operators and getting them to feature your game and selling them based on a couple of screenshots and so on, right? So he offered me instead to join them. I agreed two months to merge my business with another business and then join Playfish. And then Playfish was a rocket ship. And one year, I think eight months later, we were bought by Electronic Arts. And as part of that deal, we had a two-year earn-out. So I decided quite quickly, or I, I proposed quite quickly that I would leave my team in China because it was a quite capable team with lots of people that could continue to run it. And that I would relocate to Japan to see if I could start a mobile social business there because mobile social was just kicking off and people were talking in interesting revenue numbers. So I rushed to Japan and got going there and first did three ports of our PC games and looked at it and realized that if I optimized them a lot and spent a lot of resources, I could maybe make a little bit of money, but it was never going to be anything like having success on mobile. So I dropped the whole PC bit and then we released two games and both went to top 20, but they had different type of challenges, both of those two games. So we took all the learnings and sort of put, put everything on red or everything on black and just went full in with a FIFA game and started realizing 
throughout development, the type of traction we were having in community building and so on. And then Konami announced that they were going to release a soccer game and we thought it was game over. But then Konami's game came out and it went to the number two grossing, which was a big surprise because we had never thought that a soccer game could be top five. We thought it had potential to be around top 10. 10 to 12 was sort of our guess. So the fact that it was top two made us feel like, okay, you know, that's a bit, that's a much bigger market than we thought. Secondly, we didn't think their game was all that good. And Konami had also done a big mistake, which was that they clearly hadn't believed in it enough to use all their licenses. So they had used none of the international player licenses they had. They had only used the Japanese team. So the community was full of requests for more interesting players. Basically, give us your international players. We don't care too much about all these unknown Japanese players. So we just rushed through development and came out and released and knocked Konami out of the chart and became number one. We knocked out two Konami games, Dragon Collection and their soccer game. And that was really fascinating. That was in 2011. And because the game got to that scale, we got to do all sorts of fun stuff, right? We had 24-7 customer service. We were doing TV advertising print advertising, digital advertising, and we got to sort of scale, you know, every system to the max. And it was really, really interesting. And then the feature phone market in Japan with uh, Mobage and, you know, DNA and GRI was sort of coming to an end. The app store was coming, feature uh, smartphone was coming. And I worked to transition my team onto the app store market. We did a game based on Tetris. We did some different things. But then my earnout was done and I was very ready to relocate back to Europe. So did a long, long nine month handover of the team, went to Europe and took a break. And then I really wanted to work with games, but I, I was really feeling like I'd, I'd done so many startups and I at least when I do a startup, it's all encompassing, all absorbing. It's a bit like a marathon or yeah, it's full on. So I wasn't ready to do that. I had a daughter at the time. We were planning our second baby, but I wanted to figure out how I could use what I had learned. So I thought the best place to do that would be in a corporate role where you can sort of oversee multiple studios and help all of them and help on, on, you know, killing titles, resourcing titles, uh, refocusing teams and so on. And I tried to do that, but it turned out to be, you know, far more politic then I was kind of ready to do and far less industrial. So it turned into sort of a big reorg project that took quite a long time to get done. But I felt I had to stay in there to make sure that everyone was treated in a good way, both the company and the employees through that process. And I came out to that big reorg and sort of, you know, finally sat down and looked at it again, looked at the org I was running now. And I realized that the right thing for the company was to delete my own unit because after the reorg, the number of studios in the West was down to a number where logic dictated that you should not have mid-level management sitting in Europe. All of the studios should report to Japan and I should not try to centralize any resources around myself i should rather push them out to the remaining studios so when i realized that i was i was sort of happy it felt like a good way of moving on so i joined lvp and i knew the lvp guys because they had been investors seed investors in playfish and you know david gardner i had some interaction with him because i was you know sort of undefined vp at playfish but also because He is an old hand at EA, so he also knew what I did in Japan because it wasn't something that EA had been successful. They they hadn't been very successful in Japan prior to that, never had like a, you know, even a top 20 grossing game. So so he heard about what I did and and kept tabs on me and and we kept talking. And I, I think at the time he was expecting that I would want to start a new gaming startup. But when he offered that I would come on board with them and instead help the portfolio companies on, you know, the things I knew about monetization, live ops, metrics, product design, structuring, and so on, that seemed very attractive to me. So I jumped on there. And then quite quickly, we both agreed that this was working out for both LVP and me, and, and, and I enjoyed it. So we agreed that I would come on board as a full partner in the next fund, which is fund three for us, which is the fund we're investing from right now. So that was 2019. Before we go talk about LVP, 
more. I wanted to ask you, because you've had experience of going through these big companies. When you look at the way that Embracer, Steelfront give this autonomy and independence to the studios that they have, what are your thoughts on that model working? I think it's very, very difficult. I don't sort of envy any of the people who are working with any of those models, because I, I just don't see that there's any perfect model there's no like really good one so for example ea always gets a lot of heat for heavy-handed integration of teams and i mean i have been part of a team that was integrated by ea and i've seen the the advice they gave us when they bought the company and it was really solid advice it was really good i saw how they supported me to go to japan how they signed off the budgets and how they supported what i was doing there and it was really good it was really whatever i wanted just looking for ways to support me ready to send people down to help me and so on and my team to use that as an example stayed very sort of playfish for my my team it was very important that we remain the playfish team that we were employed by playfish that we were you know, our name cards were Playfish, that we used our Playfish email and so on. And EA accepted most of that and it wasn't really any problem. But then over time, I also recognized that as I expanded that team, I think a lot of people expected to come to EA to learn. They expected to come to a university because EA is kind of known as to be a university. And they were expecting to come in and be shown you know, frameworks, systems, tools that were more advanced than what you would find in definitely in startups, but also in, in most Japanese companies. So they were kind of expecting to be supported in that way. And when I, in the last sort of big phase of my work at EA, I was really transitioning the team into EA because Playfish had been closed in most locations and we were starting to be one of the few remaining teams and mobile had reorged. And we had certain challenges in our studio with a game we had that where we ended up doing too much crunch and we missed our targets. Uh, so we were also asking for help. And, you know, I was able to connect with EA Sports and they started sending down people based on what I was requesting. So they sent down a development director. They sent down a technical director and, you know, very slowly, very carefully started to figure out what we were doing, where they thought there was room for improvement, slowly started introducing some of their tools and so on. And it was a process that my team really enjoyed. And they really felt, I think many of them felt that finally we were delivering on the promise. I've seen something similar too in my job at Gumi when I took over, you know, 11 studios in Europe and North America, where you had all these teams that had been spun up at the same time. And they were all sort of scrambling and wondering why there wasn't more support, why there wasn't more templates, more systems, more set process for doing things basically stuff they could lean on and that was one of my big challenges was that you know there wasn't any support like that and i had to try to build it as we were running so i've kind of seen that side you know i've seen the side where teams and people expect a large company to offer you a lot of tools and things so that you can lean on things and and yeah lean on things to to, to make your life a little bit easier. And then on the other side, you know, you can also definitely see when all that goes a little bit wrong. It gets more difficult to be visionary in a large company also. You know, it becomes all very numbers driven, very, very budget driven, which is hard to be sort of religious about in the way you can be in a startup. And it definitely gets, you know, political much quicker, you know, because the size is much bigger and you need to spend a lot more time selling to, to the headquarter. You know, of course, as, an, as, a, as a founder, you're also spending a lot of time selling to investors. So it's not ultimately all that different, but, but yeah, so, so I see that side and I, I see the side, I see the desire also on the other side to leave it very lean, not integrate, just let the teams do what they want to do. But I guess, you know, the question is when you start struggling in that structure, what is the expectation of the holding company and what is the expectation of the teams? Will there be a lot of understanding if you just close down teams that you didn't sort of try to help? So I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think there's any one perfect model. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. Let's go and talk about your work nowadays. Can you quickly introduce London Venture Partners and what you guys are doing in gaming. Yeah. So London Venture Partners, I guess, is the first game-specific venture capital fund in Europe, North America. Started in 2010, 
has always invested only in the game space, content, tools, platforms, and has done always seed. So very early, I think, you know, 30% of the deals we do are with two people and a PowerPoint presentation, and often there's not a company registered yet. So so really, really early stage. The, the company is founded by people who have had, you know, who, who have worked their whole career prior to that in the games industry. So David Gardner was employee number 11 at uh, Electronic Arts. And, you know, the first guy they sent to Europe built all of the European offices, all the physical distribution. And, you know, over the next 24 years was part of growing that company to 14,000 employees at the time, 5 billion annual consistent revenue, you know, transitions through many platforms, business models, distribution models, and and worked in roles like uh, senior vice president of marketing, COO of global studios. So I don't know many people who have had a chance to work as much in a strategic capacity in games, because when you work in smaller teams, even sort of medium game companies, most of the time you're executing and you're operational and your strategic planning is whatever you can afford to spend on it, you know, maybe once a year. But, you know, David has been able to work in a company that has been consistently so large for so long and gone through so many transitions that he's been allowed to work strategically for, you know, the majority of his time. And the next or a second partner is David Lauke. And David Lauke founded Criterion Software in, in the UK, which made uh, a lot of rendering heavy games like Burnout, the Burnout series. And as part of that, they also made Renderware, which was kind of the unity of the 90s. You know, if, if you're my age and you play games and you saw Renderware, you knew that there would be some like really, really good cutscenes in the game. So he, he built that and then eventually sold that to EA and then was at EA for a short while before he left and, and started investing. So we have done seed capital for companies like Supercell, Unity, where David Lauke was also the chairman, the seed capital in Playfish, Natural Motion, and uh, Amplifier, and many others. So in total, we've been part of, of seed funding companies that have gone on to create over 30 billion US in shareholder value. Yeah, I remember I was in London in 2010 when David announced the fund. That was like so... It feels so weird. Like, is there enough deals to be done in gaming? But yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it 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 definitely makes yeah. a lot of sense now. Then thinking about your transition from being like in operational roles in gaming for two decades basically, and then then getting in, into a VC role. How has this transition been for you? And what do you think about your role now as a VC? So I always think in quite long terms, long periods of time. So my expectation was a five-year transition to sort of feel like I understood a little bit of what I was doing as, a, as an investor. And I just hit that point earlier this year. And it's definitely been like lots of different phases. So the, the first phase was moving into a portfolio that was existing, that I hadn't been part of investing into, and where the founders had not met me when they decided to take money from LVP. I will say that the meeting with those companies made me feel much more like a consultant, it made me feel very external. I definitely came in with my own perspective, which is quite different than, than David and David, you know, because I, I just came off running big card collection games in Japan, you know, very focused on, on DARPU and LTV and so on. And we ran a very tight live ops operation. And I came in with that mindset to these teams, looking at their metrics, trying to get them to adopt some of the tools I had been using and so on. It wasn't always rewarding. It was feeling of not getting through, I think, wondering why they didn't sort of react. And the teams I have built, because I built teams in China and Japan, I've always focused very much on building very flat, non-hierarchical teams, because the risk that you're told in China, if you ever build business there, is that people will not give you bad news, and it's very top-heavy. So... It was very important for me to make sure that I built teams where people could disagree with me because otherwise I, I didn't think that I would be successful. And I, I felt I was able to do that. I felt I was able to build teams that recognized me as just a member playing a certain role with a certain perspective, but not a more valuable perspective than anyone else, you know, just another perspective. And 
and that my role also was to cut through at times when we have been discussing enough and we needed to just decide what where to go but that anyone was free to challenge me on anything and i did the same in japan and again i felt that was very successful and the the number one grossing game i mentioned in japan was the result of my team bashing me for three months to do a project that i didn't want to do and there were other elements to that success that was also due to the team pushing through things that i initially thought were wrong so so you know i i came to into it feeling like I'm not a consultant, I'm not an outsider, I'm not that type of person. I'm a I'm just a team member. But what I of course recognized very quickly was that being in those type of structures, the team always knows that you are the CEO or the GM or whatever, right? So there is a totally different dynamic. When you are an investor or a board member or something, you are more on the outside. It doesn't really matter with your approach. You're still going to be a bit more of an outsider. So the process of sort of selling in and convincing the founders and so on is, is a longer one. And you need to take the time to build the relationships and get people to understand where you're coming from and so on. And even then, you can't ultimately decide where they're going to go. You're going to have to let them go also the wrong way when they want to. So that was kind of the first phase was kind of like realizing that, that, okay, I'm in a totally different role where I am an external party to the team and they will see me as such unless I can really work to build these relationships and then it changed because then i started investing and the teams that i started working with were teams that had met me as part of the process probably also you know included me in the math when they took the money from lvp and so we had a relationship to begin with and we we you know it was much quicker to get to trust and then it was much easier and it became much more i guess uh balancing act to make sure that I didn't sink in too much time in any one investment because my own sense of what you should do is maybe more operational than a traditional VC. So I probably have a tendency to want to offer too much involvement and, you know, companies are happy to take that and suddenly you, you have no more time in your diary. So, and, and you have obligations to also do other things as an investor, you know, look for new investments and so on. So I, I had to sort of find that balance, I guess. And then now this last phase, I feel, is more about the VC side of things, the financial side of things, the risk math, the stake math, the portfolio construction, all this stuff that is completely new to me. And, you know, wasn't something where I could lean on my previous experience. Thinking through these kind of phases, I'm constantly thinking about this as well, like how much I want to lean in versus I want the founders to lean towards me for, you know, help. Like how much you want to push versus get pulled in. Yeah, For me, the base model is the founder himself. So some founders are open to it. And, and we do look for those found founders. We do look for founders that are interested in having an exchange and are capable, I would say, of maintaining a vision for where they are heading that is strong enough that they don't get diluted in that vision by that interaction you have with them. So we do look for them, but of course you end up with different situations and different outcomes and different phases in, in where they are at, where some of them just want to be head heads down and don't want to reach out and don't want to have external input. And others that are very externally focused and really want a lot of input and a lot of dialogue. So that's kind of the basic dynamic, I think. And then you have your investor view, which is, you know, when you lean back and you look at the companies, you might feel like one company should be one where you intervene or impact them because they're not heading in the right way and another one might be one where you don't really feel like you need to get involved because it's it's just running quite good and or they just need to execute and it should be clear to them what they should be doing and there isn't really any need for any dialogue but then that view doesn't necessarily overlap with the other view of you know who is seeking in for not seeking in for seeking a dialogue and not seeking a dialogue so i don't know i i more and more i just think of it very individual at that level and not really so model bound because it's all just different relationships but i do think that my own yardstick for my own performance is that i really want to be the first point of contact for any of these founders if i am the board member also after later rounds when they've taken investment from other investors i feel like i'm probably doing my job if they are calling me before they call anyone else yeah that's an interesting way to measure compared to seeing like 
returns from the investment versus like the founders actually leaning towards you yeah yeah i think then then a lot of things are possible and then you can probably have a chance of impacting things or tweaking things or nudging things or getting them back on big picture if they go too detailed or lose track or something like that. But if you don't have that relationship, I think the risk that you have lost the ability to impact it like that is so big. So for me, that's kind of the only, I guess, model is trying to build a relationship where they realize that we're really in this together. I'm not really trying to judge you or score you or anything like that. I'm, I'm and I'm not there to give you unnecessary criticism or anything like that. I'm just really trying to help. The way I can help is beneficial to the founder as well as the company. I wanted to ask you about people in the industry when you've seen performers, how they learn, how they develop skills. How should people in gaming think about skill development for short term and for long term? We're talking now about founders. Yeah. Let's start with founders. Yeah. Again, you know, of course, people are so different and learn in so different ways. But I think being curious and being able to question yourself and being able to maintain a sort of helicopter perspective on what you're doing and being able to realistically benchmark yourself is one of the really important things. When you have founders that are too good at explaining away any any delays or hiccups and so on, I do have a feeling that that hampers learning. And I think it's a natural tendency in founders, you know, to be people who are high achievers and that probably have this assignment of positive results to themselves and negative results get uh, assigned externally. It's probably sort of a natural self-selection in that way, but, and it's probably necessary and it's probably good to some degree to maintain motivation and drive, but it can go too far where you start explaining away everything and you stop seeing patterns and for me when I was running teams it was always the patterns that were the most useful because I felt they were sort of my objective judge so when you look back and you see over the course of multiple sprints or multiple games or multiple hires or multiple firings or whatever you know you you should start to recognize certain patterns that can then tell you like this seems to be working, this seems to not be working, you know, to help you sort of abstract a little bit from the unique detail of each case. If you're always missing your sprint goals and the build is just always crappy and it's always very, very buggy, it's very easy to go in and and look at the detail and think that it was a unique set of circumstances that led to each individual failed sprint. But it might not be the best one to quickly figure out a remedy and if you are explaining it away it might also in my view lead you to not feel any urgency to really address anything drastically but if you look for those patterns and you start recognizing that you know yes we have different detailed reasons every time but given that there's such a big pattern we probably need to do something a little bit larger in how we are addressing this if we're going to have a chance of quickly getting back on track So I remember that from Christian. I I felt that was one of the lessons from Christian. So when I joined Playfish, I thought that as a founder, you should be working very much on training your staff. And I felt that one of the things Christian taught me was that that is not necessarily true um, because a startup is such a race. You know, if you if you have the right idea and the right model, the, then you're probably operating in a five-year paradigm and you need to build your company to some large level of success within that five-year period. Otherwise, you're going to have to pivot to the next paradigm. So you have a limited set of time to do it. And then if you're right, then you will have a, you know, two, three, four, five well-capitalized competitors that are also bracing to achieve the same as you and establish themselves as the leading ones in that paradigm. So you have limited time. So you can't really afford to solve too many issues by training people to become good at things that they're not naturally good at. So what I saw Christian do very often was to identify problems and then move the task to a different person. Instead of going into a dialogue with someone and saying, you know, oh, you're not so strong in management. We should build some system here to train you to become better at it and so 
so on, you know, rather than recognizing that, yeah, this person just isn't a natural leader. He doesn't, he doesn't get motivation from that role. He doesn't naturally want to do it. He procrastinates. So, you know, let's just take that management responsibility and move it to someone who enjoys it and can do it. And then you have a much faster impact on the org and the results than trying to spend a year to train someone to do something they maybe don't even really want to do. So, so that, that those type of learning sort of linked to my thinking around seeing patterns and then the benchmarking bit, you know, to be very, to be dead honest, it's very easy to just lean back and feel like, you know, my team is so excellent at this and excellent at that and so on, which is great. And you need to do that and you need to celebrate all the victories and so on. But I think you also need to look at where is it that we can get better? You know, maybe it's an area that you haven't tackled yet. Maybe it's something that's coming down the road or maybe it's an area where you are good, but you could be better, you know, and it could be important to be better. And I, I saw that also, you know, in benchmarking again at Playfish, some of the benchmarking we did early on was not beneficial. So I've sort of seen some of the issues you can get when you benchmark wrong and you think you're doing right on your KPIs and you stop searching for better. So I would say that's one of the traits, you know, disability and willingness to look, kind of look for the negative without getting tired by it. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. I wanted to specifically talk about CEOs with you since I, I was recently in Istanbul and I heard that like some of the, the most successful game studios there, like the CEO has a lot of oversight on the product side, working on the new game project, whatnot. Like what kind of characteristics and like things regarding CEOs that you've seen or successful CEOs, like what's common with the great game studio CEOs? Yeah, I think my base model is that the, or my base expectation, I guess, is that in most cases, the CEO of a startup acts as the de facto executive producer you know, to a larger or smaller degree. And then, of course, there are cases where that is not the case, where the founder, the, the CEO is really focused on fundraising, really focused on the org, the development process. And he has a partner that is really taking all the, the product design responsibility and acts as an executive producer. But for the most case, I think it ends up being on your first game, until you get to like, you know, meaningful revenue or multi, a multi-product studio or something that the founder CEO ends up being the executive producer. So in that case, you know, that, that person needs to have an idea of what good looks like and that right commercial balance, you know, of, of making a game for a market rather than making the game that they internally want to play and all those classical things. But it has to be someone who is good at building org, someone who's good, good at selling the vision and energizing all the different stakeholders and potential stakeholders. And the fundraising bit is such a big part of it if you really want to be competitive. And especially with the type of money that is possible to raise now, you know, you really have to be good at storytelling structuring all those external processes to make sure that your war chest is on par with whoever you're competing with or to get your product to be you know capitalized to to, to the level necessary to execute against the potential the ep angle is very interesting can you take on all of them as a ceo because then you have a lot of admin as well happening to fundraise i think it quickly becomes a problem as the org grows, I think, I don't know if it's like 20, 30 people, it starts being very difficult. And also, of course, depending on how, how much you're planning to scale. So how much of your time is spent on interviewing and, and scaling and onboarding and things like that. But I do think it quickly, I think it's one of those classical problems where the founder or studio GM wants to retain too much of the producer role, becomes a blocker in the process, and, and he's not present enough to take part in all the meetings, and the team can't move with the velocity they want because they're dependent on this, uh, this decision maker that isn't reliably present in all the right meetings and all the right post-mortems and so on. And, and it can be a bit draining for the team, right? With this person who shows up sometimes and sometimes, you know, disagrees with something that the team has moved ahead on because the team had to make a decision because he wasn't present because he was out fundraising or at a conference or whatever. So you, I, I think, you know, you, you have to be careful how you draw the lines and that you're not more than an executive producer who has sort of commercial view on the product and maybe the feature set and so on. And, and then as you scale, like you're, you're hinting at, you know, as you scale, you have to decide where do you get support? 
you know, do you hire a BizDev person to take on more of that external stakeholder work from you? Do you hire recruiters and HR quite early to take on more of the scaling responsibility? Do you staff up your development capability or so your, your, your uh, development director type person, your COO type person to take more of that? You have to give away things and be careful what you're holding on to. Otherwise, you will quickly become a blocker. Yeah. That's so true. Like some of the topics that at least for me come up with when I'm talking with founders that I'm helping is the the problems that they're having, issues, everything, because there's constantly some fires burning somewhere. How should founders, especially first-time founders, become comfortable with the uncomfortableness of a startup? I always think that there are two broad models in gaming. I think it's kind of the school that feels that everything is unpredictable and you just, I don't know if you embrace the chaos, I think you just accept the chaos and you don't really invest in reducing it. You, it's just sort of an artistic endeavor where things unfold the way they unfold and it's a constant set of fires, pivots, moved dates and so on. And then there's, you know, the the other extreme school, which I guess is, is EA Sports, in my view, you know, which is the industrial approach where you look at it from an angle of how can we remove the uncertainty that is possible to remove and you build systems and structures and invest in removing what that those type of people feel is is controllable risk i also think that there's so much risk in terms of features that don't work out or KPIs that aren't where you need them to be, or, you know, game game meets market risk. There's so much risk left that I would never really understand why anyone would want to not try to remove some of the other types of risk. And it also becomes very tiring, you know, very quickly to work in a game company where there are fires everywhere all the time. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I would always try to build some systems and structure and think things through properly i you know i i generalize a lot and and that's back to seeing patterns i find it far more useful to generalize a lot than to preserve all nuance because generalizing helps me to identify potential processes and systems and repeat issues and so on so for example i have a generalized category of game failure that I think is very common, which I call high-level concept failure, which is from the teams I've been running is the cause of the majority of failed projects, either killed in development or killed uh, shortly after launch. And to me, that means that the ultimate death of the game was related to something that could have been figured out in high-level concepting by whiteboarding. So it's things like not having thought through the core loop properly to realize that this gets very repetitive and the granularity of the economy and the systems would just quickly get sort of uninteresting or that the, the goal setting is very unclear for the player and you're trying to get the player to feel emotionally attached to some type of reward that there is no support in the market for that it would be strong enough or that the model you are trying to build in your economy and the monetization, that there is no ground in the market to believe that this would drive the type of monetization and LTV that you would need in order to be successful and scale the business or yeah, just, just, you know, or, or that you're that you don't don't have a clear view on the aspirations that the player should have for the game and that the different subsystems don't feed back to that in in a in a in a way where it sort of hangs together and you end up with something that has you know very stretched metaphors or very sort of disjointed loops so for me that's one of those kind of like chaos things it's like if you I feel like if you spend some time to question the design and the loops and the reward loops and really make sure that you know the genre you're going into and what that audience is looking for and what they are playing right now and what they are hoping will be the next iteration and innovation in that genre. If you know the history of the companies that tried to do that innovative leap and failed and why the community judged it as a failure and moved off it and so on. If you just spend some time on these things, I think you can remove a lot of the stuff that otherwise will lead you to tons of pivots during development. 
of course you cannot be sure and i you know i'm also not thinking that you can design games on paper but you know i think you can sort of on on a whiteboard and in excel you can sort of run through some of these loops and think about how these things are going to be and, and make sure you understand your audience so that's one of the things i would always do to sort of try to reduce the chaos i also think teams that have strong development capabilities you know invest early and have an understanding and a touch of value to learning how to do dev management, how to do planning, how to do sprint management, how to structure definitions of done and build systems around this to be able to manage their schedule and build thinking around how to prioritize what to build and when and, and when to validate them. Just invest enough in that production management tend to have a better, be a better place to work and be able to achieve more, you know, more bang for the buck, more logical progress towards, you know, either invalidating or validating an idea and ultimately a game. Looking at our portfolio, I think some of the teams that are doing really, really good are the ones that have really invested early or had capability like that in the team and were able to um, demonstrate their capability to manage the process and scale it, maintain consistent high quality output, minimize sort of knee-jerk pivots. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Yeah, I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff, man. I wanted to ask you about co-founder teams. Are you seen in the Last years, as you've been a VC, a lot of different teams who've just started off. What kind of co-founders should people look for? Usually there's one person who starts the project, but what have you seen kind of optimally for a game studio or is there an optimal format? I don't know. My, my, my current thinking is that there is no set optimal team. I, I, I do think it's better to be at least two, but in terms of skill sets, I then maybe this is wrong, but I think it relates to the platform and the stage of that platform. So what I mean is that early days on, for example, social gaming on Facebook or early days on mobile free to play, I think you could start pretty much with almost anything as long as you had maybe like at least one commercial product person on the team. Uh, the rest you could sort of hack together somehow and learn over time. But then, for example, on mobile free-to-play, my feeling is that gradually the requirement to that team grew because the first thing that started happening, I guess, was that you had to do marketing in more intelligent ways because the app store featuring and so on just didn't you know drive enough and you have to start understanding how to do it so you started to have a need for someone who was thinking about marketing and then very quickly after that you started having a need for someone who really knew monetization because the projects were getting so expensive that your seed funding would be enough for at most maybe two shots on goal and my feeling is that if you started out and still it is today if you start out without a good monetization guy on the team the likelihood that you will learn good monetization on those two projects in that one startup is close to zero so you sort of have to know it from from a previous venture and founders that don't know free to play and don't know the nuance and don't know the details and don't know the importance of the little things also don't know what to interview for or how to hire for these roles. And that was one of the most shocking things for me because when I came back from Japan in 2013, I was certain that the Western game companies would implement gotchas everywhere because you know, my game in Japan, my last game had $1.11 average DARPU over one year. The best days we had $6.50 DARPU. So coming to the West and also, you know, working with EA's titles in Japan, which had six cents or eight cents, it was very obvious that Gotcha Box was a huge step change in the ability to monetize these games and that everyone was going to start adopting these type of strategies. But I didn't think that I had time to do a startup based on such a trivial idea because I thought the, the knowledge is in the market. I mean, already in 2011, all the press was writing about these dark posts that we were having in Japan. So that, you know, I was like thinking that the truth is out there. Everyone knows. So everyone is all over this already. And they have teams, they have games. So all they need to do is either integrate it into existing products or just spin up a new game. And there isn't going to be enough time for me to 
go out and find a lot of people and scale a team and build the necessary learnings and bring a product to market and so on. But looking back, you know, that was a big mistake because it was definitely time to do it. And that knowledge just spread so slow. And when you talk to teams and people that have been in the industry for the last, you know, since the beginning of, of the smartphone, if they have been working on, for example, casual games, their understanding or knowledge or benchmarking for what is possible or what is good or what is aggressive, what is non-aggressive spending on a gotcha model, as an example, is often close to zero still today. So that knowledge spreads very slowly. And, and that be, so that became like a requirement for the team to go back to your question. You know, someone who really knows monetization and can get the monetization system into the design in the right way from the very beginning and have the right authority in the team to make sure that that gets as much attention as it needs to be fully fledged and resourced and, and so on. And then I felt like after that, there was another point that was added and it's not necessarily a person, but it's a role. I, I guess each one of these is a role that could be captured by potentially even just two people. But another role that got added was an ability to pitch because in the beginning on mobile i think it was very easy to get seed funding if you had some product idea but you know later stage from i don't know 2017 2018 onwards it was much more difficult to get a, a good round together and get a series a and if you wanted to pitch that you you needed to know really like how to pitch and how to talk to investors how to how to build that story if you were going to get something because the early optimism was over you know, a lot of people felt the consolidation was well underway and so on and so on, right? So I wonder if that's the model for different platforms. And of course, there's going to be certain platforms where tech is really, really critical. And there's no off-the-shelf tech and there's a lot more R&D and you have to have a CTO from the beginning. And I do think having a strong technical person is, is an advantage. So maybe the core is a product guy and a technical guy. But then I think there are these additional dimensions based on what is the model that you're chasing. And, and for example, if you're, if you're chasing what I call an execution case, where it's more of a rinse and repeat, and you know what the model is, and you have made similar games in the past, and you're just sort of quickly going to spin up a team to do the same thing with new IP or or a new entity or something like that, then, you know, then also your sort of org capabilities, your development management becomes very critical because you're trying to scale a large org super, super quickly. Long-winded answer to your simple question. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, these are, keep them coming, man. These are good. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last question before we go to my regular final questions. I wanted to ask you about luck and maybe from the angle of timing, but also luck in other other instances that happen, like, you know, everybody who was early in mobile, who did smart moves became like big companies. Now there might be a similar situation with the web three gaming, the early movers taking advantage, but like in general, like, what do you think about luck in, in these startups? Yeah, I think luck is a big part of it because like we talked about earlier, you know, product meets market, there's always uncontrollable risk someone else might release something that is very similar to you right before or right after so so luck is definitely a piece of it at the same time i think when you look at the best founders out there i think again it, it's almost like my, what we talked about in terms of uh, embracing chaos or, or trying to build systems to manage as much of the risk as possible i think the best founders out there recognize that timing is really critical like when you build your idea for your startup that you do it with a market view of what is the opportunity in the market and you have a sort of multifaceted view on what that means so these guys know that early platforms are often good for new companies to be able to catapult their way into into some you know larger size they know that early platform early new paradigm shifts are periods of time where it's easier to get capital they know that these type of early paradigms are often places where you can build additional leverage you know you might be able to get the platform owner to pay for your development or to pay for marketing or to give you a better revenue share deal or things like that. So, so the best founders, they also use timing to try to reduce risk and to maximize leverage. And I think in the alternative is also true, I guess, that 
the less you look at those things, it feels a little bit to me like the more luck-based you become, the less unfair advantage you have from those type of things, like a new platform, like uh, non-dilutive grants, easy access to capital and so on, the more you will rely on luck that comes down to your product meets market in a, you know, if you think like you're launching product on a known model into a saturated market, investors are maybe not super excited about it and so on. And things come down to your metrics, your revenue and little else. Yeah, really good stuff. Hey, Are, final questions here for you. What's your favorite book and why? I was thinking about this yesterday because I, I read through your questions. I didn't realize you wanted to say my favorite book. I was thinking about a good book I'd recently read. So I, I, I like I, I read a lot of history. And for the longest time, I've been reading quite old history. And then I decided that I had to stop doing that and had to read something more modern. So I read uh, a book called Postwar. Uh, which covers European history from 1945 to, I think it's 2013, 14, by a guy called Tony Judith. I think he recently passed away. So it's it's a history of Europe since 1945. And I, I don't, oh, actually I'm reading here now. It's 1945 to 2005. And I didn't think it was going to be very interesting. And somehow I think about that period as kind of lacking history it's kind of like post history in a way but i was shocked how interesting it was and i was shocked how little i knew of europe and all the decisions and all the things that have happened and all the bargains that have been made you know around german reunification around the founding of eu like all these type of things that are so important to our present time but i I knew so little about so so that's one that i would really recommend anyone to read i was reading it right after brexit and felt like everyone that voted in that election should have read that book yeah that's really good hey do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today i guess in many ways i feel sort of very norwegian or i guess germanic in approach I, I was raised to work hard, you know, that's the core thing. And it felt like it that got reinforced in China. I was 11 years in China and everyone is working very, very hard. And it felt like one of the pieces of success is just working very, very hard and very, very much. I don't think that's necessarily good. I also have a Chinese father-in-law who passed away recently, but he once told me this story, which is, which is an old Chinese uh, story. So he started by saying to me that I have it all, you got it all wrong, he said. And I was wondering, like, what are you saying? And he said, yeah, because you believe that working hard is the key to success. And I I got a little bit provoked by this, right? And we were sitting in Japan at the time. I had my number one grossing game and work was insane, right? I was working almost all the time if I wasn't sleeping. So he, he was, I guess, concerned for his daughter and my wife and the, you know, the fact that I was never home and the fact that I probably, you know, looked exhausted and so on. So he said, yeah, you, you, you think working hard is the key, but you got it all wrong. And I got really provoked. And then he told me this story, Chinese story, which he said, you know, that the, the key is to know where you want to end up. So the key is to know, like, what is that position that you're trying to get into in your life? What is that state that you want to be in? And he said, if you focus too much on working hard, you are probably not spending enough time to think about this question. So you probably have an underdeveloped sense of what that exactly is, like what that position really is. You're So basically, you're just chasing hard forward without knowing where you're heading. And then he said, the second bit is also not to work hard. The second most important thing after you've identified where you want to end up is to recognize where you are. So what is it in your situation that is good and bad? What is it in your situation today that you enjoy, that you don't enjoy, that you would like to change or would like to keep or would like to get better at? Or what is it in a total sort of human way, you know, everything from exercise to mental state to family to everything, a place you live, you know, totality of, of where you are. And then he said, and then, and that takes a bit of time to think about and again you're likely to underinvest in that not really know yourself if your days are passing too quick because you're working too hard so he said only then only then when you identify those two points is it right to work hard but then working hard has to come from 
making sure that the pressure you're applying, the hard work you're doing is actually moving you from the point you're at towards the point you want to become. Because even just working hard after knowing those two things could also lead you to the wrong place. So you have to sort of calibrate how you work hard and what you're working hard on to make sure that all this energy is moving you towards that place that you're you're aiming to get to and i thought it was just like absolutely brilliant i always think about that story yeah yeah that kind of you know where you want to go and it's a reverse engineering kind of taking the steps backward from there yeah amazing Yeah. And I think it's very true. I think it's so easy to just work hard and get caught up in the day to day and your calendar gets full and you're just crunching, crunching, crunching. And and you, you know, depending on how you think about things, you know, you maybe start optimizing that to optimize your schedule to you. Like when I was operational, I was optimizing how to take decisions quickly, what information I needed to make decisions. And I was trying to optimize around, you know, taking as many good decisions a day as possible and so on. And, And, you know, it quickly leaves no room to really think about where you're headed and how you're feeling. Hey, Are, final question for you. If there's entrepreneurs in the audience who want to reach out to you and the good folks at Wonder Venture Partners, what's the best way to do that? Just email me, I guess, Are at londonvp.com. Easiest. Very happy to hear from anyone. Nice. Hey, this was so good. Like amazing stuff. We'll be thinking about all the stuff that you mentioned now for for ages, for sure. Thanks so much for coming on. This was like a really big treat. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Take care, Are. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.